pastors. Before that, we were youth pastors. We served in kids' ministry. Um, just just have been a phenomenal place. And uh, I never wanted to be a lead pastor's wife. I always thought, they're just so uncool, right? <laughs> and so when Jesus asked us to do it, he was like, we got to do it. I cried. We, I kind of went kicking and screaming. But what I have discovered is that when God asks you to do something, it's usually the very best thing that you can do. It is the best thing that you can do. And I've never regretted it. He has transformed our lives through um, the journey that he's taken us on. And so we embrace it and know that he's got good things in mind. But when we retire, we want to be like you guys. Cool again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I told my husband at lunch, I said, don't you miss all the energy that we had as youth pastors? Like, oh, wish to be that again. In addition to being pastors, um, we are also parents. We have four kids, two boys, two girls, two biological, two adopted. Three of our kids are adults now, 25, 24, 23. And then we have a 16-year-old girl at home who is going to be the death of us, we think, some days. Um, she is a uh, hormonal challenge, but uh, we're glad that we just have her by herself. Um, so we tell you that, though, to tell you this. We, live, we have lived out a lot of what we're going to talk about today, having these hard conversations as parents. We have lived in the trenches. We have dug in the trenches and struggled. Um, our kids have struggled. And so we're here um, just with an understanding that we, we're living it, too. While you're living it, so are we. And um, we're all together in this process. Whoops. Also, I think... Um, one of the other things that kind of drives us to be here today is um, our, our side. Do you want to talk about the apologetics and kind of your background there? Yeah, so for me, I uh, grew up in church since the fifth grade. But our church was big on uh, kind of the, the precepts, but it didn't help you understand the principles and the person of Christ through the process so when it comes to sexuality when it came to anything really it was important for us to uh, understand the why I was I was not one of those compliant children you know you have compliant kids they're like yes whatever you say that's what I'll do it was usually the opposite right for me I needed a good why a good why shouldn't I jump off the roof uh, you know and and the answer is gravity that's a good why it applies to you and uh, going through youth ministry, for 10 years we did this, I saw a pattern that uh, kids make decisions. At a young age, you're making decisions, cocoa puffs for breakfast or fruity pebbles, right? How many fruity pebbles? You say no problem. Anybody cocoa puffs? Get that? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Spider-Man pajamas, Power Ranger pajamas, what am I going to do? But then as you get older, you start making decisions in areas that will affect your future. And here's the thing. You can't help but make decisions in those big areas. They are forced upon you. And I saw a pattern that there were seven areas of decision making that every human has to make. And most of those decisions in those areas will affect your future. So what you believe about God is number one. That defines everything else. What you believe about your attitude how your attitude shapes how you think about life. It colors everything else. And you think about there's 12 spies that went out. 12 spies went out. All of them saw the same stuff. But they didn't all have the same report. So two came back and said, yes, we can take the land. Right? What are their names? 
Yeah, Joshua and Caleb. Ten came back and said, no, we can't do that. What are their names? Yeah, nobody remembers those people, right? Because you don't name your kids after those people anymore. They, they died generationally. They're gone. Nobody, I bet in a room full of Bible scholars, you couldn't come up with one of the ten spies' names. Anybody? Yeah, we can't. The only difference is their attitude. So that's number two. Number three is how you handle authority. Uh, authority is everywhere, and if it's in the human hands, it's imperfect. So how do you process imperfect authority? Uh, number four was pleasure. How do you handle pleasure? And in a world that worships happiness, we're the most depressed generation that's ever lived in America. Because happiness was never intended to, to be God. It's a, it's a byproduct of knowing God. So, uh, and then relationships and sexuality. That was a big, in the big seven. And then, go ahead, you can give it back to her. Are you going to hold it hostage? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to make her pay a ransom for it or what you are going to do. <laughs> what, what did I leave, leave off with? Relationships and sex. Uh, production, which is education, work, time, and money management. So the production part of your life. And then the last of the seven was adversity. How you handle adversity because everybody's going to go through trouble in your life. How you process that's going to matter. So I figured if I could teach students, not just the hows of this stuff, but the whys of making these right decisions, that I saw my life as a youth pastor and a kids pastor, that I'm teaching them to do life well. I'm, I'm helping them. I'm guiding them through the minefield to live the abundant life that Jesus promised those who follow him. And so we, we process that. And then coming into uh, ministry from an aviation background. So I went to college to be a pilot. And I graduated from flight school. And then God asked me to be a youth pastor. So I figured the devil doesn't ask people to be youth pastors. So it must be God. So I became a youth pastor. And the first two years I hated it. It was very difficult for me because... Uh, planes are easy, right? You pull back, houses get smaller. You push forward, houses get bigger. But people are challenging. And leadership is challenging. And church politics is challenging. And there's all kinds of dynamics. Once you get into the other side of the ministry curtain, you realize, okay, this is work. And, uh, but one thing I did bring was going through Flight Instructor Academy where I was, I was taught to teach how to fly airplanes. And then going into the church and seeing how we teach people were two different things. Because in any industry, when lives are on the line, I have to make sure you get it. And if you don't get it, you don't pass. You don't get your license. You don't, and if you don't get it, or there's kind of a natural weeding out process where if you want to mess with physics, it, it will harm you. But... In the church world, we were just kind of used to, if we could present information, maybe give a little 15-minute deal over here and keep the kids happy and keep our parents off our back. And, but I realized we were dealing with issues that had great gravity to them. These big seven issues will affect their future. 100%. They will affect their future. But we didn't train students to manage. You see, when I teach you to fly airplanes, I don't teach you to fly it when things are going well only. I teach you to fly it when things are going bad. That's when a good pilot makes his money. Anybody can fly a plane when it's flying, but when something's broken, now what? And these students will be facing a worldview that's broken. Can you train them to discern, to discern within that worldview how to navigate through 
the big seven areas with a biblical worldview and then come out the other. So can you train them to do that? And so um, we, I, I started studying how can we teach. The other thing that grieved my heart was so many students raised in church leave the faith after church. And I thought, ah, what, what are we missing here? So I started to be proactive in my training with the students to, one, see why they're leaving the faith and see if I could head that off before they experience those temptations and challenges out there. And there's a, a theory called inoculation theory that I ran across that was asking how could I change your deeply held beliefs? How could I take one of your deeply held beliefs and how could I change it? And what they did, they took this group of college students, which are, are good to experiment on, I guess, and because they're all in one place and they're poor, and, <laughs> and so they'll do anything for money. And so they said, okay, we're going to find a deeply held belief, and we're going to see if we can change it using four different methods. So they found a belief that they thought would not be harmful if they changed it, but we could help change them back later, and it was the belief that brushing your teeth was good for you. So who here would say, I believe it's true, brushing your teeth is good for you? Anybody? Say, okay. Any doubters? So what they did is they took that belief and then they created a pseudoscientific article that said brushing your teeth is not good for you. Actually, what we've known all along, the science has changed on this, that it wipes away the natural salivas that help preserve your teeth and protect it from decay and here's what we know now that's old news the new news is brushing your teeth is bad for you and they had four categories of students what the first category was just no no preparation is brushing your teeth good for you yes okay good you're in this group then they would go into a room they'd read the article and then assess if they changed their belief next group was a reinforcement of the prior belief the reinforcement said, yes, before you go in there, I just want you to know brushing your teeth is good for you. They'd read the article, and then they would move forward. Then the third group of people was a, a warning. Listen, I want you to know you're going to go in there, and you're going to read an article that says brushing your teeth is bad for you. They'd read the article, and they'd assess their change. Then the last group was a warning plus a refutation. I want you to know you're going to go in there, you're going to read an article that brushing your teeth is bad for you, but here's why that article is wrong. And they gave them a refutation of the article before they ever read it. Now, looking at those four groups, which group do you think changed the least? Yeah, the last one did. The warning plus refutation. Which one changed the most? Actually, the second one. The ones who were just reinforced a prior belief. I just want you to know brushing your teeth is good for you. And then as I read that study, the light bulb went on. I said, that's, what the church, that's how the church teaches. That we know when they leave our bubble that they're going into a world that is going to have some very convincing arguments as to why Christianity and the Christian worldview is wrong, especially about this topic. And they're going to think, I don't think my pastor knows this stuff. I, either that or... I think my pastor didn't lie to me. I just don't think they know about this. And these people with three PhDs and my college professors and these psychologists and these sociologists, they're all telling me something different. And what we as a church say is, no, 
this is what God says about sex. We just tell them over and over again what we've told them before. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Instead, what I started to do then is to run ahead of where they're at, look at what the culture says that's wrong, and then spit that argument back to them and then teach them why that's wrong. So I would teach at multiple levels, not just the truth of what God says, but what the world says about that and then what the truth is about that. It's multiple levels. And that's how we taught in aviation. Not that I just teach you how to fly the airplane when things are going well, but I, I said, when this breaks, what do you do? When you smell smoke, what do you do? When the wing's on fire, what do you do? And we go ahead of those emergencies and we simulate them so that you're ready when it happens. We don't get ambushed by those things because years and years of aviation, now we know what kills people. And we say, okay, this is what hurts people. This is what we're going to train you for. And in our children's and youth ministries and adult ministries, we need to say, this is what's killing people. This is what God says about it. And this is what you should, how you should live. So we teach at multiple levels now. Instead of just saying, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Why does the Bible say it? You know, about sexuality, the whys are so important. Why do we have the sexual morals that we have? It's not because God was just arbitrary saying, I know, let's just do this marriage thing and let's limit sex to that. No, it's because we are made in his image and the process for making image bearers is sacred. Image bearers are sacred and the process for making image bearers is sacred. And so you have this idea that if we're made in his image, it means we resemble him in some way. And if you think about the gift of sex, now what's crazy is I look through these cards and there's a lot of pretty much nothing, uh, a big zero, they didn't, never had the talk, or even a talk, exclamation point. It shows some frustration there. Uh, the sex is saved until marriage. My mom tried to talk about how it worked. Uh, I also walked in on my parents when I was 16. That's an education. <laughs> That's a hard yeah. yeah. A lot of nothings. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I would say, I grew up in Assemblies of God Church. I was in church back in the day when it was your Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And so I was in church all of the time. I was in the youth group all of the time. At, I, I did Bible quiz. And every year, you know, we were memorizing a book of the Bible. And by the time we got done, we had been national Bible quizzers. And we had, I had 13 books of the Bible to memory. And still not one person, not one person ever talked to me about sex. And at 16, I made some pretty um, poor choices in my life and for six years sowed a whole lot of brokenness. And I remember one day um, after I came back to Christ, I, you know, it had been a rough road. Um, I was actually engaged to be married and I was getting my marriage license. And when you get your marriage license, back at the, then, back I, don't then I don't know if they still do it. This is back when they were building the pyramids. <laughs> That's what our kids think anyway. Um, but when you had to get your marriage license, you had to take an HIV test. And I remember sitting in my health department uh, lobby waiting to take that test. And the reality is I was about to, you know, I've come back to Christ. He makes all things new. He's redeemed me, all those things. But there was still this moment. I'm about to be a pastor's wife. And the reality of my brokenness kind of hit me right there. And I remember thinking to myself, why didn't anyone tell me? 
My parents didn't have any conversation with me. I learned from friends and siblings and books. I learned a lot of wrong things. And my, you know, our youth pastor, it was just like, don't date unsaved guys. Well, why? No, you know, there was no discussion about how God's ways are awesome, what he thinks of me as a woman, and, and teachings on identity and who we are in Christ, that we're image bearers, and these, the beauty of sexuality. And so that is one of the things that compels me to have these conversations. It's not just because it's fun to have hard conversations. But as we empower parents, it's to say, can we change things? Can the church become relevant there's a scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you, any of you like that movie, but I've watched it too many times. The second movie, The Two Towers, and Theoden uh, has just awakened from his stupor. And the orcs are marching to Rohan. They're going, you know, they're coming to kill him. And he is in this tension, and he just, he's frustrated. He says, you know what? I will not risk open war. And Aragorn looks at him and says, open war is upon you whether you will risk it or not. And I would say to us as leaders, there is a war that is waging, raging right now, and the victims are our kids. Our kids are being held captive. Our young people, our young adults, they're dealing with sexual bondage to pornography, obviously this gender confusion, gender identity issues. And we have a responsibility to say, what are we going to do about it? And so it's really the thing that compels us, you know, because if we don't help parents deal with it on the front end, have the hard conversations, maybe do things that are a little bit awkward and uncomfortable to answer questions, then we're going to deal with it on the back end when we're dealing with kids who are broken, adults that are broken and have baggage. And so it's coming to us one way or the other. The question is, can we help kids have a different story? And so that's a lot of um, what compels us to do what we do. And so what we want to do here today is just really empower you to equip parents, um, understanding that we as a church have an opportunity, not just a responsibility, but a cool opportunity to do that. You want to jump into this? Sure. The other thing I think that's important is, especially for youth and kids, is that you are ministering to them at a key season of their life when they're forming their sense of who they are. And so when, when we research and we look at sexual identity and how that's formed, we are seeing that there, it goes through three stages. The first stage is this identity dilemma. If a student is feeling different attractions than their peers, then how they have to think, how am I going to process this? If they're having a sense of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, uh, then there's a dilemma, and the, the next season of their life is going to try to process and resolve that dilemma, trying to relieve that tension at some level. And they're going to take two routes, one of two routes, a biblical route or cultural route to resolve that dilemma. And so there's, then it's going to move to an identity development stage where they're going to have some milestone events that will turn them one way or another toward a resolution. Uh, there's going to be an attraction. It might move then to behavior. Uh, it might be a girl sleepover. It might be some kind of situation with more senior person. Uh, it might move toward disclosure when they start sharing, this is what I'm feeling or this is who I am. And once you start sharing that, it begins to solidify and try to resolve that dilemma. It could be labeling. It could move into a relationship. And then finally, it will move towards some kind of synthesis, some kind of closure to relieve that tension of the dilemma where they say, I've arrived at some stable identity that reflects how they, uh, 
see themselves or how they feel about themselves. All of those stages occur during seasons when kids and youth pastors are ministering to them. It's a critical season for that, for us as a church to, to actually start shepherding students uh, through this process. And I think this is where we, we come to this idea um, that we have to have the parents um, involved. Because let's just be honest, we only have so much influence. And if we can bring parents on board, and I know as soon as I say that, how many of you have something in your mind that says, you don't know my parents? Come on, you can be honest. I know I've had those parents. Um, one of the things that I also do, by vocation, I'm a social worker, um, and so I have worked uh, with families for the last five years. I work in child welfare, um, post-adoption primarily, working with foster and adoptive families. And one of my jobs that I had was a crisis case manager. And so what that meant is whenever there was a, a problem in an adoptive family and the kids were spiraling out of control or the parent, things were breaking down, I would go into the home and help them assess how can we make things better. And I remember one day walking into uh, a home that, I'll be honest with you, that mom was scary. She was probably um, one of the most angry moms I had ever encountered. Um, I walked into the home and, you know, tried to do the typical things that I would do to engage her. And she said, you know what, I've done all that. Have you ever had that kind of parent? I've done all that. And she, um, she had three kids that were adopted. They had mental health issues. And she basically just handed me her kid, and it was like, fix my kid. And so I spent the first couple weeks, you know, working with these kids, trying to engage and getting very frustrated because it's very hard to do um, anything without the parent. But what happened, I, I was able, um, week number three, I just sat down with her at the table, and I'm like, tell me your story. And she began to just kind of pour out her heart. And um, I began to see behind the exterior of anger um, and hopelessness, I saw uh, a parent who was very disappointed, a parent who was very scared because she didn't know how to, to handle the situation that she was in. Her kids were out of control. A parent who was grieving what she expected adoption to look like. And it began to change um, my approach, and I just began to listen and, and say things like, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. Um, I began to share with her our adoption story because one of our sons, we dealt with serious mental health issues and began to share some of the stories that we had. And, and suddenly I saw her exterior begin to soften, and pretty soon there were tears. And she said, I never expected it to be like this. You see, oftentimes when you get that parent in front of you and you see the exterior, it's easier to say, you don't know my parents. <laughs> it's hopeless, or I don't know how I could ever get them on board. And I want to challenge you today as we talk about this. Listen, understand, I know that they're challenging, but if we can get our parents engaged in the process, our kids have so much greater chance to successfully navigate some of these questions. And, and I want to share with you primarily why. Number one, is this is our parents matter because they have relationship. And in most cases, no one has a greater relationship with your children or your teenager than the parent. Now, I realize there are situations where that isn't always the case. But no one has spent more time with them or has that bond and that level of attachment and trust. And those things are really important when you're having awkward conversations. When you say to parents, okay, listen, you're the best one who needs to talk to your child about sex. That you have to teach them the names like vagina and penis. You have to talk about things like masturbation. You know, everybody just kind of goes, oh, deer in the headlights look, really? But you, 
within the context of relationship, you have the best relationship to share those very challenging things and getting them to understand that because it comes from a relationship of trust. One of the, um, the conversations in the session uh, that they did on porn with Pastor Mark, he talked about the importance of teaching kids the names of their body parts and, and how... Um, you know, that was important. But, but from a child welfare um, perspective, that is critical. Because when you're dealing with kids in sexual abuse situations, if children are not taught the proper names of their parts, their body parts, it is very difficult to prosecute sexual abuse cases. So if you teach a little girl that her vagina is cookies, and she says, Uncle Johnny touched my cookies, there's hardly anything you can do from a forensic interviewing standpoint. It's very challenging. So helping parents say, listen, you have a relationship from the time the kids are little to begin the process of saying, okay, these are your body parts. This is private. This is not, you know, this is, we ask permission, you know, if, you're, if it's a doctor or mommy. Having those good conversations and, and having that relationship to, to not make it awkward. Usually we adults make it awkward. When we start when they're young, it's not awkward for the kids. And so understanding that relationship matters. The second thing that's really critical is this idea that parents have time and proximity that we don't have as leaders. You get your kid once a week, maybe. Maybe sometimes you'll get lucky and get them twice that week. Parents are typically with them 24-7. And they have opportunity to impart truth, to talk about hard things. They have opportunity to start the conversations very early the best time to start a conversation on sex is when? How old do kids have to be? If you Immediately. You were in Mark's session. Yeah. We want to start right away. We want it not to make it abnormal to talk about our bodies and to talk about things. Um, and we'll talk in just a little bit about having the specific conversation. But we want to be the first one having the conversation. We want to get ahead of the culture. Because typically the first person to talk about it with your kids is the person they're going to run to when they have questions. And so I want to talk about it before Johnny on the school bus is exposing him or her to something. So they have time and they have proximity. Um, the third part of that is that no one has more opportunity to see the red flags, the problems that may surface, and, and the trouble when it actually comes. Um, and, and I think for a lot of our parents, you know, they will come to, come to you with this idea, well, I just don't have time. But we really have to challenge that. We have to challenge, you know, all of us have the same amount of time. Every yes to one thing is a no to something else. And so as a, as a family, what are you going to say yes to? What, you know, how, what's important to you as a family? Um, there is a, a book that was written by uh, Kevin Lehman and Kathy Flores Bell called The Chicken's Guide to Talking Turkey with Your Kids About Sex. It's actually one of my favorite books um, out there. And, and they said this, most sexually active pubescents and adolescents have one thing in common, busy parents, distracted parents, and overwhelmed parents. And so just bringing that elephant in the room right away is all of us, you know, have scheduling issues. All of us have to reprioritize, but we want to make it important to them that your kids are valuable and they need you in this process. And I think the reality that we often forget, again, when we see parents and, and we judge them a little bit harshly, is we don't realize how scared they really are. I worked with uh, parents in the church. I work with parents in the secular world, and it's pretty common across the board. They're overwhelmed by the technology. They don't know where to go to find the answers to their questions. 
and they're really scared about what's going to happen to their kids. Right, and there's a lot of them that would write nothing on this card. So we're, uh, life wisdom used to be passed down from generation to generation. Now that transmission belt has been broken. And so, you know, when you start with nothing, then you have to start, it's almost a process of learning yourself so you could impart to the next generation. And so they're kind of doing double duty. It's like if you quit school in the eighth grade and then you try to become a doctor at 50, uh, you're trying to pay for medical school, you're trying to, uh, you know, be a husband, a parent, and you're trying, all that stuff just gets poured on you at once. And so that's where the church can come in and say, let us help you. Let us help you. You can stand on our shoulders. We can bring that information closer to you so that we can equip you for, for the job that you have that no one else did. No one else thought to do that. Yeah, and I think the last thing is really critical to always remember is that your, your parents are typically going to be the best ones to have the heart to help their kids. Uh, you know, I, again, I work in child welfare. I realize there are some very crazy dysfunctional parents, but they are really the exception. All their churches are filled with non-dysfunctional people, though, I'm sure. So, so they're, <laughs> no, they're just all they're at our the church. Exception. These are exceptional people. Um, but, yeah, and, but for the most part, most most parents want to be good parents. Most parents want good things, and their heart is there, and they're willing to be invested if they feel like they can do it. And as we can come alongside and encourage them, one of the things that I um, share with my parents is even the science world, um, they, when scientists look at this idea of, of our teenagers and sexual risk-taking, even scientists believe that parental supervision and positive parents' relationships make a difference when kids are making choices about their sexuality. And so, you know, hitting them with the reality is even though you don't feel like it, even though you, may, you maybe think my kid won't even do their chores, how am I going to get them to listen to me about sex? The reality is actually that it does make a difference. If there's an involved and attentive, attentive parent who's um, there, not, not overpowering or over-controlling, but, but walking alongside the child to help them in that process. The other thing is really cool is that in the national survey by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, teens themselves reported that their parents have the greatest influence over their decisions about sex, more than their friends, their siblings, or the media. And that blew my mind because, again, as a parent, what are you internally always saying? Oh, they're not going to listen to me. But the kids themselves, I really think that a lot of our kids really want their parents to be involved. They just don't know how it's going to look. And so often um, they share that their parents, that they share their parents' values about sex and they make decisions, and making decisions about delaying sex would be easier if they could talk openly and honestly without their, with their parents. And so those are things that we teach our parents and we, you know, parents is a God idea. Parents are something that God created and um, teaching them that they're important and that they can do this is really critical. So one of the questions that um, comes up Sorry, it's after lunch. We're all trying to navigate. Um, what about parents who don't come to church? You know, I, I know they've got the Christian parents and they'll do all that stuff, but what about the, the parents that don't come to church? And I would um, really recommend that um, you look at it as an opportunity to build a bridge to those parents. Um, one of the things that I did when I worked um, in post-adoption support is we did parent trainings. And so we asked ourselves the questions, what do our parents need? What are our parents struggling with? And what I found out is that most of our parents outside of the church are struggling with the exact same things that our parents inside the church are struggling with. 
They're overwhelmed with technology. They're terrified about pornography and predators on the internet. They don't know how to answer their kids' questions about sexuality. They don't know what to do when their child is addicted to pornography. They don't know how to lock down the Chromebook from school. And so what we found is, okay, if we can find a way to meet that need, then we can build a bridge and a relationship to those parents. And so one way we did that is we... um, we actually partnered with Living Hope with our church, um, and we invited the people from our adoption program and Living Hope parents to um, a Protect Young Eyes seminar. How many of you have heard of Protect Young Eyes? Oh, wow. Okay, so that's the one resource you should know before you leave here, and you, it's in your, your packet. We'll share it in a second. Um, Chris McKenna started the Protect Young Eyes ministry, and Chris was a youth pastor in the Grand Rapids area, and he answers all questions digital and technology related. And he basically, he and his team now, because they've exploded, um, they spend all of their days researching the latest trends on Instagram, on Snapchat, on everything digital. How do you lock down your iPhone? How do you lock down the Kindle Fire? And so we brought Chris in, and he negotiated. He's like, I know you can't afford a lot. He came, and he did a presentation to our parents. More secular parents showed up than our Christian parents showed up. So I'm saying to you, like, find creative ways. How can we support them? What do they need? Even if they're not faith issues, can we come alongside and build a relationship with them? You want to share about Deb? Yeah, so you build a bridge at that point. And I think, so if we look at how the church is positioned within our world today, I liken it to what I would call an exilic existence. So, you know, Peter said, live as exiles. And so you have this exile model where instead of thinking you're training kids to live in Jerusalem, you have to equip them to live in Babylon. So if, if you are simply training them to live in a church environment, then when they get to Babylon, which is when they leave their house, uh, or for some of them in their house, they're not going to be ready for that. We have to think, how can we equip Daniels to live in Babylon as an exilic? Not just to live, but now how do we teach them to make an impact? How do we teach our parishioners to make an impact in Babylon. And so for us as a church, we took kind of an exilic model and said, how did Daniel make a difference in Babylon? Well, Daniel made a difference because Nebuchadnezzar had problems. And so whenever you live outside God's design for you, you're going to experience problems. Sin always has a consequence. One of the ways I think I can know ethically if an action is right or wrong, is the consequence of that action. So when you violate purpose, you diminish capacity. And we can even look at this sexually. If you're looking at sexual ethics, if there's a diminishment of capacity, so a health consequence or a lack of ability to procreate or some kind of issue that hinders you emotionally or spiritually or physically, if it diminishes capacity, you're likely violating purpose. In anything designed, right? So if your car, if I went and put water in your car's gas tank or antifreeze in the wrong hole, it's going to diminish that capacity. It's because I'm violating a purpose. So as I violate that purpose, I'm diminishing capacity. So sin is going to bring problems to the world. That brings opportunities to serve because people need help. So whether it's the porn issue or technology or whatever, As you serve, you'll have opportunities to share the gospel. So what we did is we started a program called Protectors. 
and it was for our junior high boys that was training them to see themselves as protectors, as young men. That part of God's design for you as a male is to be a protector. And if I can get them to think that way, to look at their, the, the women in their life and the people around them, that I'm there to help protect them. And so we said, God has called you to protect yourself and others from bad ideas, truth versus lies, bad images, which would be pornography, and then bad individuals. Sometimes those that are being oppressed need to be liberated. And, but if I don't train a young man to be a protector, he will default to predator. It's kind of like two, two male settings. <laughs> you know, there is a drive for us to protect. And, and you see this in guys, whatever they value, they cover. Right? So from a young age, if it's sports cards that they're collecting, the valuable ones are always covered. The other ones are destroyed, right? They're put in the spokes of their bikes or, or whatever. And so that doesn't change as guys get older. They, they love demolition derby cars. Let's smash this one for fun. Or we have the classic car that's in the garage mahal, all designed there and then covered, protected, right? So you, you two impulses. Let's blow something up for fun or let's protect it. And so how we train our boys, to, we want them to move toward the protective mode. So we created this idea and we use bullying as our problem. And we said, let's train these kids to be bully-proof. And in the process, we train them to be protectors. And we used self-defense stuff, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu stuff, and, and taught them how to do that. Well, we had an eighth-grade student who, um, Pastor Nate, our, pastor, our youth pastor, would call the parents and say, hey, we're going to talk about pornography. These are things we're going to address in this, in this class. And she said, yeah, I don't... I don't think he knows about that, and I'm not sure I want to send him to that program because I don't, I don't want him to learn stuff before he's ready. And we kind of had to tell her, listen, he's an eighth grader in a public school. He knows about this stuff, right? You're way behind the eight ball here. And so we had to process her through that, that season, but we used it, uh, the problem of bullying to help address other issues uh, in, in our ministry. Yeah, how would you go about this in a nutshell? Um, there, are, there are tools for sure, but before you work the tool, I think you have to grow yourself. We have to grow ourselves. You can't impart something you don't have. And so I think what the church is looking for from you and your leadership team is that they're looking for an accessible expert. Somebody that I know. Uh, I used to a lot, it was easy for me most of us in the room, if we're in ministry, we like to read, we like to study, we like to process information. That's part of the call, I think. And at least for most of us. So it was easy for me to think everybody's like that. Well, they're not all like that. So I could say, oh, yeah, you got this problem? Here's a great book for you. Read this book. It'll solve that problem for you. They don't want to read a book. I've actually had people say, don't tell me to read a book. Anybody else have that? Yeah, don't, don't tell me to read another book. They don't, they don't want to read a they book. They don't want to read a book. You know what they want? They want you or your team, or a system, or a group. They want an accessible expert. Please help me understand how TikTok works. <laughs> okay. Uh, because my parents didn't teach me about TikTok, and I need to know how, how all this. So becoming an accessible expert is important. Now, that to me has a couple of different components. First one is credibility. Cultivating credibility within your ministry will go a long ways in every subject. 
And credibility is a function of trust. So if you don't return phone calls, or you're not showing up on time, or you're known for always being late, or these other character issues, then when it comes time for you to speak on something really important, you won't have the credibility in your bank account. Right? So build up that credibility through professionalism in, in your work. And, and that, will, that will help. And then credibility also will come through studying and just learning. Pick, pick a couple subjects. When I was a, a youth pastor, um, I, I think part of it was being motivated by just I was poor. I wasn't paid a lot. I was a church planting youth pastor, and they didn't offer me a salary. Uh, and I thought, man, how could I get better at this? And I realized that if I would become an expert at youth issues, uh, people would come to me. And if, if you solve harder problems, you make more money generally. So I just dove into learning the youth culture. I dove into understanding those issues. Back then, a lot of that stuff was uh, anorexia, cutting. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to become, even though I didn't have the degree after my name, I wanted to become a local accessible expert by reading people who had degrees and understanding the processes of that, not just from a theological standpoint, from a sociological and psychological standpoint as well. You can become an accessible expert through studying this subject and, and then becoming credible uh, as a leader. And then the next one is just connectivity and communication. So what tools have you developed already that build bridges to parents? You should have some kind of systems within your church that already build those bridges. When you get a new student, how can I can think broader? Think, okay, if this student's going to be healthy, I need to do what I can to see the home is healthy. And again, you can't do everything for every home. But what bridges have you already built of communication to your parents and then bring this subject on top of those bridges that you've already built. You become an accessible expert in that. So when a parent comes to you and says, yeah, my daughter uh, is, you know, is talking about being pansexual. Uh, what is that? Can you help me with that? And you can say, oh, yeah. Does she like Miley Cyrus? <laughs> you know, you'd know. You have some connection there to, to that, and you can walk her through some process. But, but you don't, unless you know about that stuff, it's going to be hard for you to impart to them. Uh, and if worst case scenario, you can say, let's learn together, <laughs> you know, and you can at least be someone that's linking arms with them to, to learn the process. So what we've done that has worked for us, think blogs, uh, think even short videos, as long as they're consistent, you know, the, all the old social media tropes, consistent content, consistent, good content. Um, you know, if you want to use the social media stuff, that's accessible. And then uh, we've done seminars. So when you do the seminars, I was shocked at how many parents came out once a month. No, it wasn't once a month. We did it on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, for a half a day. And we combined two churches. I was a friend with another pastor, and we were combining two churches. We said, hey, let's do this thing and see, see what happens. But parents were hungry to know. And we did four hours plus a lunch. 
and four sessions, and, and that's all on our website that you'll have access to if you want it. Yeah, we did the four, four things were the story of sexuality, which is kind of a foundation that Carrie did, and then I did having the sex talk with your kid, like this is what it would look like, these are the specific how-tos, you know, don't humiliate your child at the table in front of their siblings to have the conversation, don't be crass, you know, respect them, those kind of practical things. Um, we but we did talked about homosexuality, we talked about transgenderism, pornography. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so we, we gave a big theological foundation, but then also very specific stuff. And, man, they ate it up. And then COVID happened. I wonder if that was our fault. <laughs> oh. No, and then through COVID, one of the things that, how many of you have used Zoom? Any Zoomers in the room? Okay. So one of the most, all from a um, vocation standpoint, all of my parent trainings have gone to Zoom. So, and I think it really is going to be here to stay because it's so convenient for parents. Um, all, again, all of the trainings that I do are for parents. And parents can just walk from the living room into the bedroom. It, you know, their kids are in the other room and they can somehow still attend that. So for us, we, we just created creative ideas to reach them, to connect with them and make it a little bit easier. In the process of that, one of the things that we have done um, is create resource guides. And on your sheet, your last page, you'll see a QR code. Um, you guys see that slide? That QR code will give you our entire folder, the human sexuality folder with articles, more articles you will, than you will ever want to right. read because he never ends. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that uh, for me as a pastor and you as youth pastors and children's pastors is that we have to speak on broad topics. You know, we, we just can't lock in and become a PhD on a certain topic and just live that life because the Bible talks more than just one thing. It talks about marriage and family and sexuality and money. And so what I, one of the greatest things that I've ever done is create a system of, of uh, kind of grabbing information, storing it topically so that when I need to speak on it, I can retrieve it quickly. And so I have a filing system for that electronically. In the packet there, what I've given you are my two files on sex, three files, sex, homosexuality, and gender. And so there's probably 300 articles in there on that, some, some videos, whatever. And if you want all of the sermon illustrations I have, then see me. I can, if you have a thumb drive, I can download them. It takes a long time because there's like 2,000 of them. Yeah. We're information junkies. So... We also have a, a page in that file, uh, recommended resources that we give to our parents. So for example, when I teach the how-to, having the sex talk with your kids, I offer different um, options for parents. Because you do have the parents who have, they're coming to the game late, and they have a 14-year-old you know, teenage boy. And the thought of having to talk about these things yeah, is just and it's paralyzing. it's a single mom. It's a single mom. So, so it can be as simple as reading the book together, talking about it with your child, or Dr. Meg Meeker, who happens to live in Traverse City, she was a pediatrician who noticed increasingly um, difficult challenges with kids with STDs. And she has all kinds of parenting resources, but she put together the talk. So the child and the parent sit together, they watch her explain it, and then they go over the questions together. But the point is they have to do it together. And we emphasize that with our parents. You cannot hand your child a book and say, here, read this. Come see me if, they, if you have questions. The kid will never Somebody come. Somebody wrote that down. A couple of you guys wrote yeah. that. 
Your I kids will never come to see you if they have questions. They'll go find somebody else with some answers, something a little bit safer. So the point is getting parents engaged. And so these were just different ideas. Some of these are based, these are based on age, if uh, that series. This is my favorite. It's a little old school now. Um, dealing with pornography, what's on your phone, good pictures, bad pictures. Um, I actually did this, with, this one with my youngest daughter. Um, this is a great book here. All of my high schoolers, I made them, well, when they were high schoolers, I made them read this. And now, I, you had them read. It's this book. This is the revised title of it. Oh, yeah. The first title was called Epidemic. It was all about STDs. So our kids are like. <laughs> she got lamb, a little bit lambasted, so she changed the name of it. So, uh, yeah. Um, but basically, it was, if this happens, this is the STD that's going to happen. And this is what happens to your body when you have chlamydia. This is what happens when you have um, HPV. And so I had all my kids read it. And I kind of took the Solomon approach. Um, it's my job to warn you. If it happens to you, it's on you, not me, because <laughs> I'm here. So we teach parents to, to equip their kids. Um, this is the other, the other resource I mentioned, Protect Young Eyes. Um, it's just protectyoungeyes.com. And anything you want to know about technology, any device, this, is, this makes it so I don't have to be the expert in everything. I don't have to remember how to do um, the open DNS. Remember he mentioned in the pornography breakout? Um, that's on there so because I have done that on my router so um, anything you want to know about locking down your router your Chromebook your iPhone parents can go right to that device and it tells them how to do it it also talks about the different apps that are out there how kids are hiding apps they do it and so he says no, they would never do that he sends out a weekly um, email um, and they they've really exploded and just really empowering parents and so I highly recommend getting that to your parents how many of you have heard about fight the new drug? Man, listen, if the secular world says porn kills love, we need to jump on the bandwagon and, and say, yes, we agree with you. This is something we can actually agree on. It is a secular organization based on science. They say we're not religious, but they have so many resources on the physiological effects of pornography on the brain and the body. And again, educating parents, because a lot of times... Listen, if the kid's addicted to porn, very sometimes the parent is addicted to porn, too, if it's in the home. And so um, it's just a great resource that I share with all my parents or use the videos. I'll sometimes post those. They have really short videos that, um, just to kind of explain it. And then um, STD stats. If you want the most current stats, some of you may already know this, the Center for Disease Control, CDC, always keeps up to date. Um, the sad reality when you go to their website is that teenagers, I think it's 12 to 17-year-olds, represent one-fourth of the population, but they have over half of the STDs. This is the last statistic that chlamydia is up 19% from 2015. This was from 2019. That's the most current information. Gonorrhea is up 56%. Syphilis is up 74% and uh, congenital syphilis. And then you can go to what is this sexually transmitted disease? Um, anything you want to know about them, it's on there. And so we share this information with our parents so they're aware of it and our kids too. That's just the Center for Disease Control. I think it's cdc.gov. And then I'll let you share that. Yeah, so when it comes to becoming an accessible expert, I think there's some resources that I've leaned on personally. Um, right now, anything by Sean McDowell, he's doing a really good job of treating this. Anybody remember his dad, Josh McDowell? Raise your hand. We got one Josh McDowell, a couple, a few of you. Okay. So anyway, he had kids, 
And so Sean is very engaged in um, any hot button issue in the youth culture. He still teaches high school. He teaches at Biola University. So any, any hot button issue in the youth culture, Sean McDowell's doing a good job, in my opinion. And he's doing a good job uh, delivering it via YouTube. He also is on TikTok. But he has a great YouTube channel. Every week he has some kind of interview or some kind of conversation that's live. And he's got a number of them on same-sex marriage, homosexuality. Uh, the last one, I think, might have been on gender issues. So, and he just wrote this book. Chasing Love in a Sexually Confused World. Uh, philosophically, on the meaning of sex, Jay Budjashevsky is a philosophy teacher, and he teaches at, I want to say the University of Texas, one of these big universities, secular universities, and he's a Christian. His famous book is How to Stay Christian in College, if you haven't read that. Uh, but he did a really good treatment on this. It's kind, of, it's kind of a book that Dorsey would read and say, ooh, that's really good, but you'd have to read it three times. Um, but... So shock him and read that over the summer. And, and, uh, and then if you want a historical treatment of what sexual morality was like in the New Testament times, this is your book, Sexual Morality in a Christless World. It does a really good job of taking you from the history of the New Testament and then some of the current arguments for um, sexual immorality today. That's a great book that kind of depresses you and excites you at the same time. Uh, so homosexual issues, Chris, Chris Yuan, I think Pastor Jeff mentioned him. Chris Yuan's story is uh, he grew up and wanted to be a dentist, but he was living in the gay lifestyle. And somehow he got addicted to drugs and went to jail, came to Christ, and processed his same-sex attraction. Now he's a professor at Moody Bible. And so he writes a lot on this. His first book called Out of a Far Country is this testimony of him coming out of those things, God delivering him, and, and also his mother, how it affected his mother during those seasons of his life. So it's a, a powerful book, Out of a Far Country. Uh, Sam Elbury's book, Is God Anti-Gay?, is a book that we have on our shelf, at a propaganda shelf, I call it, at our church, and we just give it away without comment. I just have them available, and usually any big event that has a lot of secular people that come to it, weddings, funerals, that kind of stuff, they just fly off the shelf, and it's a good, it's a thin book, you can read it, hour, hour and a half, and Sam Albury's uh, a British fella who, his, his struggle, same-sex attraction, but he lives a Christian celibate life, and he does a good job of the theological treatment. Some of the, uh, the issues, they call it homotextuality, where they take the, those Greek and Hebrew words that Jeff was talking about and change them. So you need to have a great working knowledge of that because that is on the cut. That's, it's going to hit you no matter what. It's, it's coming. Um, people who, the Christian, the gay Christian, it's how they justify it. It's through that reinterpretation. You know, for the first 2,000 years, we got it wrong. The last 50, all of a sudden, now we're getting the Bible right, I guess. Um, and... The complete guide to understanding homosexuality is thicker and it's more clinical. So if you're interested in the counseling aspect of it, this is the book for you. Gender Dysphoria, if you haven't read When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson, I would recommend it. Um, don't look for it on Amazon because it's banned on Amazon, but you'll find it other places. 
Uh, it's a good book. That book has the best chapter on uh, detransitioning. De so people who have, they struggle with gender dysphoria, they were told the cure for you is to transition, and then in their mid-20s they realize that was a dumb idea. And they're mad at the psychological profession for making it so easy for them. So there's a whole group of those people. 60 Minutes just did a, uh, a deal on it, detransitioners. De um, because what's, here's the demonic thing about it, is that you have these girls who don't like being a girl, and they feel like they want to be a boy for whatever reason. And I don't know if I've ever run into a girl who at some season in her life thought this stinks. Um, but then they start taking drugs, and, and they start growing whiskers, their voice changes. And so what they were searching for in their adolescence was their feminine voice, and they were having a hard time finding it. And it's the very thing that it costs them because they have a deep voice that they can never get back. They can never find their literal feminine voice again. And so you can see the demonic ploy in just trying to steal the identities of these kids. That's why we need to be contending for them. Um, so that's, it's got a good chapter on that. Uh, embodied Preston Sprinkle is one of the leading voices, Christian voices in this arena. Uh, he's got a real pastoral heart. He, he uh, if you want the double whammy, go find the YouTube video where Sean McDowell interviews Preston Sprinkle, <laughs> and you get them both together in, in, in the deal. Uh, he wrote a book called Embodied, The Transgender Identity in the Church. Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Uh, if you want someone that's AG certified, Linda Seiler, actually just got her PhD in this subject, but she was a Chi Alpha pastor at Purdue uh, for a number of years, and for a good chunk of her life, she didn't want to be a girl. So she was literally gender dysphoric for a, a long time. In college, she came to Christ, and it was a Chi Alpha ministry that helped her process that. And now God has used that experience to help minister to other people struggling with that. So she, her website, lindaseiler.com, has got a lot of great articles. She keeps on the front end of this thing. She also has, a, I think, a paid course, like 50 bucks for her to teach you. And that's cheap. It's cheaper than a college course. Um, you know, for I don't know, four or five hours of her kind of teaching you through this, uh, this stuff. So, do we have any more? Oh, Sorry. that's it. Scan me. It's a Google Drive folder, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. What do you have? Any questions or thoughts? I gave you a whole lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Becoming an expert. So I always say if you want to be an expert, outread your peers. But if you want to be their leader, you have to outcommunicate them. So you've heard it say that all reader or that readers are leaders. That's true. All leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. There's a lot of people who just love to read, but they're afraid to communicate anything they know. Because once you start communicating something, now you're taking a risk. Uh, especially on this topic. So that's why I talk about building bridges of your communication. You're a communicator. As a leader, it's a big thing. You're communicating vision. You're communicating truth. Just grow in that skill as a communicator. And whatever technology can use to, you can use to leverage that, do that. But out-communicate your peers. Don't let the world tell their lies longer and stronger than the, the church is telling truth. What questions do you have? Well, I got a quick question. Sure. 
If I'm in your position, I'm thinking, oh, who would I go to for that? Um, I would friend Linda Seiler on Facebook and just message her and say, okay. hey, man, what can you do to help us with this? Or what do you know yeah. um, about that? Some of those other resources may touch on it, but it doesn't ring a bell. They're more late, later stage stuff. You guys got it? It's all perfectly assimilated. <laughs> I know when listen I understand when you come to a seminar like this you're thinking I have so much work to do I totally get it I really do just start taking bites of the apple start taking bites of the apple start processing your thoughts you know our seminar was just born out of putting information together putting right people together and then just launching it but it took us some time yeah Good. Yeah, so I, I was taught, my mentor taught me to collect, categorize, and communicate. So as you read and listen broadly, it's kind of a big mountain of information. Then the next process for you is to say, what is important for me to save? What is important for me to categorize? Um, and I think one of the best ways to know what's important is be on the cutting edge of uh, the culture. You need to braille the culture. Um, it's, same mentor taught me this, that you can't throw yourself headlong into the culture. It'll corrupt you. But how do you touch it like you're brailing it so that you can read it and let that inform you? Remember, I have to learn about the emergencies of the airplane before I can teach you how to handle that emergency. So how can I go ahead of what that 13-year-old is going to see in high school and that argument? So some of the things that we would do, for instance... Uh, we have a local community college, and I knew a lot of our kids would go to that community college. And when they would take classes, so the number, the top two subject matters where kids left the faith the most, psychology and sociology. It wasn't even the hard sciences. It was the social sciences. And so whenever they would take a class like that or a philosophy class or a biology class or logic or whatever uh, at our local community college, I knew that that kid was going to come to me and say, this is what they said. What do you think about that? So what I would do is I'd say, okay, take good notes, and then I would, I would learn what that teacher teaches at our local community college, and then, the, 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 then I would incorporate that in the curriculum you know, for the juniors and seniors that are going through. I just went ahead of them to do that. So there's just ways I've learned to get ahead of that culture. Um, things I do, I, I have students give me notes. I will uh, billboard top 10 songs. A couple times a year I'll go through the billboard top 10. And just look at lyrics, study artists, just kind of understand their story. I think the last time we did this, Billie Eilish just won a ton of Grammys. I thought, we got to know about this girl. And so we studied her lyrics and we went through that, process that. There's another magazine that I get. It's a quarterly magazine called Salvo. 
In fact, there's a copy of the latest issue right there. Yeah, so all of you should get a subscription to this. Um, if your senior pastor won't buy it for you, uh, bug him or her. Um, Salvo magazine comes out quarterly, and it gives you scholarly but accessible... It, uh, ooh, uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I'm hungry! Uh, articles on three, three areas, sociology, so society, societal issues, sex, and science. And so what, what I'll do is I'll get this, depending on where I'm at, I'll have the analog version, I also get the digital version, and <clears throat> let's see, the last article I read in this was, oh, this was a good article, uh, finding a different path, new laws that are making it harder to help people walk away from LGBT, so they're creating these laws that are against conversion therapy, so to speak, so in Germany it's now illegal for you, even as a pastor, to help someone who wants to be out of same-sex attraction. Okay, 20-some states in America have that law. It's called, it's a ban against deconversion therapy. Okay, we're going to have to deal with that. You've got to be ahead. You have to understand, how do I process that? Even from an argumentative standpoint, if the highest ethic, and this is where the article helped me understand this, if the highest ethic is sexual self-determinism, in other words, if you feel it, you should be able to do it, then I can turn that back around on them. If someone doesn't want these feelings, they should be self-determined to be free to get rid of them right so uh, there's a free speech case down in Florida dealing with this where those in the counseling arena were saying this is a free speech issue where we can't tell people if they don't want same-sex attraction how to help them with that um, an uh, article on toys because they started removing boy and girl toys from toy aisles and stuff so you can't say well this is a boy toy and this is a girl toy uh, the, the kids will let you know what's a boy toy and a girl toy, though. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't been deprogrammed yet. Uh, this is a great article on being a person. What's it mean to be human? Because human sexuality, the ethic first comes from what's it mean to be human as an image bearer. And so I, I just archived this article. And in my laptop, I probably have 60 or 70 categories that I'll file certain articles under. And this one would go under my anthropology category. Anthropology... Some of you guys have taken systematic theology and you blew through the anthropology section. That's becoming more and more important now because human rights issues start with who has the right to be human and what's that mean? So that's what I do. I'll, I'll read and I think over the, over the years I realized I could use that. Somewhere, somehow, that's, that's good and I'll file it electronically. In my, I have a whole analog file, too, that I, I don't use much anymore. But, and then I just categorized those things. It, helped, it started with me with the big seven. I knew I was going to teach on God, attitude, authority, relationships and sex, pleasure, all those things. And so I just started finding experts in those areas and then taking their stuff and filing it. It's in Word. Yeah, but my wife says Google's the way to go. Yeah, I do have some of it in, in a Google Drive, and it's all on a hard drive, an external hard drive, but my laptop's always with me. Yeah, I cringe. I, I'm trying to help. I'm getting him there. Look at He has an AOL address. I'm like, babe. He, That's it's, vintage. It's, yeah. That is vintage. This is our argument. This is, ah, he's, he refuses. <laughs> Come on, man. That's classic. 
So I know we're almost, we need to go. I just, the other thing is Truth Academy. Just, you want to share a Truth Academy? That's a big deal. Truth do. Academy. So remember the inoculation theory? So a number of times a year, we would take, we used to do it on holidays, spring break, Christmas, and we take two and a half days and we pick a topic and we equip at those levels. We introduce the topic, we introduce what the culture says about the topic, and then we refute what the culture says about the topic. And then we put them in a flight simulator. So let's say the topic, when we did homosexuality, we had my wife come in and she, we role played, the flight simulator was she was a professor. Remember that? Sociology professor. And she began to share about homosexuality and different sexual preferences. And the Christian kids in the room started to get nervous. And one kid ventured, he's like, yeah, that's not what the Bible says or whatever. And so she just jumped down his throat. Like, we don't bring the Bible in here just like she would in a secular classroom. And so we... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've right. Sat, doing, having a social work degree, I've had to sit through all of that and listen to all of that. Yeah, so we put them in a flight simulator. So we do this a couple times a year. We pick a topic. We find out what God says about it. We find out what experts, non-Christian experts say about it. And then we refute what they say. We teach at three levels. And then we put them in a flight simulator where they often will rotate rooms and then I'll role play a college professor that says, yeah, you know, why do you bring God into the science classroom? That's not right. And force them to reckon with it before they're in the real plane trying to fly it. Yes. You know, we, we create those experiences. Uh, and the point is, be creative. You know, God has gifted you guys with creative ideas. The Holy Spirit will give you those ideas as you develop. And those topics become, you know, things that you want to share. He'll give you those vehicles to share it. But just believe that he's called you to do it. Number one. Secondly, don't be intimidated by the enemy. Um, we have to do that. And I, I know that the Lord is on our side. It should be awesome. So. Yeah, and tell stories of people that have come out of immoral lifestyles. Tell more of those stories. Storytelling is so important right now. Yes. Tell those stories. Those, those people who lived a gay lifestyle and then came to Christ, they're, they're people with no country. The church doesn't know what to do with them. The homosexual friends kick them out of that club. And so we need to help them and, and embrace them, love them, and then share their stories. Uh, we, you know, we've shared the drug addict story. We've shared the murderer story. We've shared all those stories. But the, you know, those that come out of homosexuality, we still don't know what to do with them. It's, let's love them and, and then tell their stories. Yeah, okay. God bless you. So we want to take a short break. We took your break, sorry. Yep.